We all know the legal world is complex and high pressure. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all of your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. We kick things off with our two-headed panel today, rejoining us on Legal Faceoff. She's been on multiple times. Carolyn Shapiro, Associate Professor of Law at Chicago Kent College of Law. Professor, welcome back. Thanks so much. Also joining us from California, the esteemed dean at Berkeley Law, University of California, Erwin Chemerinsky. Dean, welcome to the program. Such a pleasure to be with you. So Dean Chemerinsky and Professor Shapiro, uh, let's kick things off by talking about your thoughts on the amicus brief filed by 200 members of Congress last week, urging the Supreme Court to reconsider the landmark 1973 Roe v. Wade decision, which legalized abortion nationwide. Well, it's in some ways not surprising that there would be uh, that that kind of brief would be filed. There are certainly members of Congress and other legislators around the country who very much want to make abortion uh, completely illegal and inaccessible uh, to, to all women. So um, they see Roe v. Wade as what the thing that's standing in their way. So in that sense, uh, it, it's not surprising. I personally, I would, I'm skeptical that the court will take them up on that invitation. I think the chief justice, however distasteful he might find Roe versus Wade, is more likely to want to chip away at it uh, than overrule it outright. Dean, what are your thoughts on that? I agree with Professor Shapiro. I think there are five justices on the current court who allow much more government regulation of abortion. I think there may be five votes to either effectively or explicitly overrule Roe. But I don't think it's going to happen this term that the Supreme Court will explicitly overrule Roe versus Wade. I do think that this brief is a political statement by these conservative members of Congress that they want the court to end Roe versus Wade and the protection of abortion rights. Let's turn to impeachment. Um, you know, that's not been in the news the last couple of days, given the events of the Middle East. But what, by all accounts, we will likely see a trial in the Senate uh, in January, maybe February. Justice John Robert, Chief Justice John Roberts will preside over that trial. Uh, Dean, how do you expect the Chief Justice to handle uh, his role in a Senate impeachment trial? William Rehnquist presided over the impeachment trial of Bill Clinton, and he later remarked, he did very little, but did it very well. <laughs> My guess is John Roberts is going to follow that model. He's going to try to appear that he's always fair and impartial. But the reality is, this is a decision that's going to be made by the senators. The reality is it takes a two-thirds vote to remove Donald Trump. And everyone knows going in, that's not going to happen. Uh, Professor Shapiro, you clerked for Justice Breyer of the Supreme Court. Do you think that we'll see a trial in January? Of course, the Republicans have stated that because the House has not actually presented the articles yet, that it means that President Trump has not been impeached. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I think it's a little bit silly to claim he hasn't been impeached. 
uh, when in fact he, the vote was clear uh, and and a clear majority voted to impeach him. The technicalities of presenting the articles to the Senate. Um, I, it's not clear to me that there's really a constitutional requirement that the House do that. Um, but what's really going on is a political tug of war between uh, Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell, Speaker of the House and, and uh, Majority Leader of the Senate, over whether or not the there is going to be a, a trial that's actually meaningful, that's actually going to allow for the development of evidence and, and facts. Uh, there are some witnesses who, such as John Bolton, just today said he would, in fact, testify if subpoenaed by the Senate, um, which is something he refused to do in the House. So there is evidence that could be developed in the trial in the Senate that, that we don't hasn't yet come out. And that's really what this debate is about. So let's turn now to three of the most important cases that are going to be on the Supreme Court's 2020 docket. Um, Let's look at first the Second Amendment. In December, the court held arguments on its first Second Amendment case in almost a decade, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus City of New York. Dean Shimerinsky, can you please explain why they took this case and what it's about? From 1791, when the Second Amendment was adopted, until 2008, the Supreme Court never struck down any law regulating guns as violating the Second Amendment. But then in District of Columbia versus Heller in 2008, the court struck down a 35-year-old D.C. ordinance that for the ownership and possession of handguns. Justice Scalia wrote for the court, it was 5-4, to four, and he said there's a right to have guns in the home for the sake of security. But is there a right to have guns outside the home? When can there be restrictions on guns outside the home? How should courts even approach restrictions on guns in terms of their constitutional analysis. I think the court took this case so as to clarify all of that. And I think there's also five conservative justices who want to expand gun rights. But what makes this complicated is, subsequent to the Court of Appeals decision, New York City repealed this ordinance. New York State adopted a law prohibiting such restrictions on guns. And so the argument is, it's now moot. It's a challenge to a law that no longer exists. Professor Shapiro, how do you think they will ultimately rule in this case? Well, I think they should rule that they don't have jurisdiction because it's moot for the reasons that Dean Chemerinsky just said. Um, I think that there are at least some justices who will want very badly to to say some things about the expansion of gun rights in, in favor of the expansion of gun rights. I don't know that there will be five such justices. It's worth adding that the that the law itself that that was originally challenged, even though it's no longer on the books, was a pretty extreme law. It doesn't striking down that law wouldn't necessarily require striking down very many other laws in, in, that are out there regulating the ability of people to carry guns outside the home. Uh, this was this was a law that that basically prohibited any uh, movement of of a firearm outside the home. So it is, um, it was extreme. It's no longer good law. It's no longer on the books. It really can't meaningfully ever be reenacted. So what the court should do is say they don't have jurisdiction. Professor Shapiro, another case um, that will be decided in the coming year is involving Trump's taxes, of course. It's actually three cases mm-hmm. that were granted review, Trump versus Nance, Trump versus Mazars, and Trump versus Deutsche Bank. All three, of course, involve President Trump's attempts to overturn the federal appellate court's decisions in New York and Washington, rejecting the president's arguments to shield financial records from law enforcement 
and congressional investigations. How do you think the court will view this relatively unique legal argument? Well, I, I think it's actually going to be it's difficult to predict, but I think that the, and I think that the two cases could come out differently. The two types of cases, the cases involving Congress versus the case involving the prosecutor uh, in, the, in New York who is seeking these records. But in both, in, especially with respect to the state prosecutor, the president has taken an extraordinarily aggressive position, which is that he cannot be he and his organizations cannot even be investigated for criminal wrongdoing while he's in office. Uh, and even by a, a state prosecutor who is not part of the federal executive branch, and therefore all of the concerns people have about separation of powers when the, it's the Department of Justice investigating simply don't apply. So I think that the court is quite likely, I think, to say that the that that particular subpoena should be enforced. Uh, it might put some language or some restrictions on the scope of such subpoenas in general. One could imagine a situation which, you know, prosecutors all over the country started filing subpoenas in a, in a way that appears to be harassing. That's not what's going on here. So there, while there might be some limiting language, they, the court should, in my view, absolutely enforce that subpoena. The congressional subpoenas are slightly harder, in part because the the there the at least theoretically the House has its own remedy for failure to comply, and that's impeachment. Uh, and in addition, uh, but but in addition, in order to strike down those subpoenas, the Supreme Court would have to second guess. Con- Congress's statement that it has a legislative purpose in seeking this information. And that's not the kind of second guessing that the court generally likes to do with respect to Congress. Dean Shimerinsky, the Trump administration has canceled the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA program, an action that puts more than 700,000 so-called dreamers at risk of deportation. Every lower court to consider President Trump's action, regardless of whether the judge was appointed by a Democrat or a Republican, has ruled against the administration and held that there was no basis for rescinding DACA. But the Supreme Court has a conservative majority. What did we learn from oral arguments on November 12th about how the court is likely to rule on this case? I should disclose that I'm one of the co-counsel on behalf of the DACA recipients who have been involved in the case since the federal district court level. I think that the oral argument indicated that there may very well be five justices to come down on the side of President Trump. I think that the question is whether the court will adhere to the principle that administrative actions require an articulated, legitimate reason. What every lower court said was President Trump didn't have a legitimate reason for rescinding DACA, but will the five conservative justices, or even one of them, adhere to that? Really quick prediction. Uh, I know this is hard, but do you think we'll see any openings in the Supreme Court in 2020? No, absolutely not. Dean? I don't know that we can say. I don't think any of the justices are going to choose to leave in 2020. On the other hand, we know that there are justices who are elderly, and a lot's going to depend on health issues that none of us can possibly predict. Great SCOTUS panel per usual, Carolyn Shapiro, Associate Professor of Law, Chicago Kent College of Law, and the esteemed Dean at Berkeley Law, Erwin Chemerinsky, University of California. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you so much for having me.